This podcast is Entel Enhanced. To see pictures, articles and links of what's being discussed, download the Entel app. Hello, welcome to the Big Scuba Show. Hi guys, my name's Lee Bishop. I'm a shipwreck diver and I've been invited today to be on the Big Scuba podcast with Ian and Gemma. Hope you enjoy the stories and the chat that we're going to go down. Welcome to the Big Scuba Podcast. Thanks for downloading this episode. My name is Ian. I'm one of the co-hosts. And with me by Zoom is... Hello, I'm Gemma. <laughs> you had to think then what your name was, didn't you? <laughs> no, I didn't. You did. Come on. So, uh, yes, welcome. And uh, thanks for downloading this episode. We want to say welcome. And this is episode 86, Gemma. Yeah, number 86. We're tapping yeah. through them now. We certainly are. Uh, coming up on this lovely episode is our lovely, great chat with Lee Bishop. Yeah, we spoke to him just over a, well, a week ago. And uh, yeah, it was really entertaining. Yeah. Hark, I hear you say, who's Lee Bishop? Well, Lee Bishop is a diver, explorer, photographer and writer. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been down to some great depths. Um, he's been a diver with other well-known divers, Richie Kohler, John Chatterton, Andy Torbett. Um, Andy Torbett, all to name a few. Um, he's very well known on the scuba circuit and has been in the diving world for oh blimey, a good few years. Yeah. So um, you know, um he, you know, is very well known and uh, well established. Um, there's lots of media out there. I was watching something only recently and uh, um, about a wreck out in the Baltics, and uh, well, that become there he is, yeah. and uh, he's being interviewed. And this is back, oh, I think this this is a recording back in the nineties. This yeah, one. he does like. Well, he's a big wreck diver. Basically, he's a big wreck yeah. diver, yeah. and. Um, you know, he'll be talking about that with us um, in the forthcoming um, this of this episode. Um, so, Jem, but, you know, before we do that, uh, what have you been up to since we last spoke? Well, it's only a week that's passed, so it's been a busy week at work. And then we've been busy uh, crossfitting and keeping our dive fitness up. So yeah. that that has been kind of the main thing apart from work, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, we can't. It'd be lovely to go diving um, every week. That would be great. Yeah, but unfortunately, we yeah can't. Bills to pay, family to support, and, <laughs> uh, like everyone else, you know. So uh, we have to go diving when we can, and uh, const- and do other things in between. And uh, but I think this week uh, we are the tides are right. So uh, last week we spoke on eighty five about our dive at Weybourne. Yep, that was the Friday before, and then we've Hope, not. Well, hoping to get on the water at Cromer this Wednesday, mm. all being well. So um, uh, maybe even the lifeboat will be out again. Which we yeah, could. and then potentially diving might happen next weekend. Yes. If, if conditions are right on the coast. Yeah, so uh, uh, you never quite know, you know, on the east coast of England on whether 
we're going to get it, be able to get in or not really the currents mm. can be right but then the wind can be wrong and yeah that stirs all, all the that's goodbye to all the visibility and you know so uh you're never quite sure till yeah. the end of the time but, but equally uh, we've got lots to work on outside and of the water with keeping our fitness up and doing our weights and there's always something there's always something going on isn't there? yeah yeah, and we've, today we're at CrossFit. What did we do today, Jen? We both achieved rope climbs. I know. I'm right chuffed about that. I tell you, I'm right. You know, got. I'm getting to nearly thirty, and that's the first time <laughs> I managed to climb a rope. Yeah. So, what would what uh, height do you think that was? Three meters? Uh, no, a bit more than three. I should maybe four. Four. Yeah. For four meters. But we achieved that getting up four meters or five. Aladdin could climb a rope, you know, these snake charmers and that. Then here we are, you know, oinks from Norfolk. Well, you're in Suffolk and Lowestoft. We we managed (laughs) to climb a rope. Yeah. And I loved it. Yeah. It was great. It was. That was a right achievement. And then we did a few handstands on our heads and we did a 5K run. And then I did a 400 meter swim. So we've achieved yeah. a lot today. Yeah. So, uh, well, I've got another week and then the diet start and it's all getting ready for getting back into dive master work next year or being well. Well, I don't think you've got any fear about not being fit. No, no, but just, uh, you know, got a little bit of lockdown surplus. Carrying <laughs> at the minute, so I just need to get well, rid of that again and yeah. uh, be, be bang on the button again or being well. <laughs> bang on the button bang on, on the button that's what that's what us dive masters do is it <laughs> okay anyway let's move on before we digress and get myself into trouble um so i'll tell you what we, yeah, some other little bit of news uh for our listeners once to get my words out is that we have confirmed this week f- with our lovely fr- new friends at ford that ford uk um supporting us on another dive trip which is mm. really exciting yep so we've got another little trip planned away mid-october yeah so uh, not totally finalized with where we're going we can't um because of the of where we're looking to go they can't confirm till a bit near the time but we have got a plan b and then a plan c yeah so watch this so, space yeah certainly will um so we should be if you ever heard of a nugget (laughs) a a ford nugget look up what a ford nugget is and uh we'll be doing a little bit of a a road trip with that and seeing how they work out as a scuba vehicle yeah the big scuba and the nugget yeah so uh we've got a little bit more left to share actually with the raptor um So there's a few more little bits to do with that. Um, yeah, so hopefully they'll be out on YouTube soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to sort of round that one up. Uh, hopefully not the end of the Raptor. Hopefully we'll get that back next year. It'll be good. Yep. No, that was, yeah, great. And it makes a great dive vehicle. Yeah, loved it. And uh, that was that was really good. You get lots of gear in. Uh, space on the Nugget is going to be a bit more tighter. So it's going to be interesting to see how we fit everything in. We need to travel light. Can you do that? Yes. Can you get the things down to like six handbags and um, carry bags? You're really giving me the wrong impression to our listeners. 
I think I travel lighter than you do. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Anyway, enough about my <laughs> luggage space requirements. We'll see. I think, well, it'll be a comparison. That's going to be a feature now. Certainly will. Um, so apart from that, it's all sort of been a not bad week, really. I've seen some really good posts by several people. Um, some really good, um, there's been quite a few people diving at Landy this week and yep. really good quality photographs um, yep. that people have been sharing. Very friendly seals as well. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, we've had, yeah, quite a lot of, um, well, we've shared about happy bottles. We've kept um, using those at our CrossFit sessions. We like our happy bottles. Yep. So, yep. Check them out. They keep your drinks hot for 12 hours, your cold drinks cold for 24 hours. So yeah. you can use our promotional code, Big Scuba, to get 20% off. Yeah. And also, uh, we've got some social media coming out this week regarding Frostfire as well. Mm. Yep. So check those out. They're really cozy uh, changing robes. They certainly are. So, uh, look out for that on our social media anyway um so that's kind of where we are um so should we uh, sit back and uh, let's delve into our conversation with lee yeah let's uh, say hello to lee and uh, this is the first a- of a two-part and um we kind of pro- <laughs> one of those one of those conversations that you go, ah, oh, you know, just allow 60 minutes to 90 minutes tops, you know, we'll have it all wrapped up within an hour. Famous last words, because we get chatting away. And uh, Lee uh, has got a lot of stories and, you know, fascinating stuff to talk about. And he's just a lovely, lovely guy as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and especially to talk about, you know, some of these early days, because, you know, uh, some of the stuff that these guys were doing back in the 90s when rebreathers particularly was like cutting edge stuff you know it's right you know right on the fine line between them working or not, not working yeah you know and uh they were their lives were on the line really mm. they might say that oh no it weren't the case but you know, it was, you know, let's face it, although they probably had bailouts and stuff like that and plan B and plan C as well. But but he's seen the diving world evolve from kind of the early 80s, I guess. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely amazing, you know. And uh, yeah, it's thanks to these, these guys, um, you know, Lee and the others, um, who have made it all possible for the rest of us to follow. Mm. So with that, let's sit back, let's chat, grab yourself a cup of coffee because this is a good one. Okay, here's Lee Bishop. So Lee Bishop, welcome to the Big Scuba podcast. Thank you very much for uh, giving us a bit of your time this morning to uh, talk to us. We're going to have a little chat about your, a little bit about you, your background, technical driving. What got you started? Okay, well, um, Thanks for inviting me on the podcast, uh, for starters. It's really nice. I like a podcast myself. I like to listen to a podcast. I like to listen to a story that somebody tells me. Um, so hopefully um, you guys have nailed me before I, I go for the long sleep as such. Um, so we can get a few stories down 
for people to listen to. Uh, but for the listeners, yeah, I'm predominantly a shipwreck diver, a shipwreck explorer. I'm nothing else, really. I don't go looking at pretty fish as such. Um, and I'm not an instructor or anything like that. I kind of just dive shipwrecks, something that I got into. Originally, I was a cave diver, well, a caver. Okay. Uh, that's my background, really. Uh, so when I left school, um, I went to work on a building site, a construction site. And um, I met a guy that was wearing a T-shirt and it kind of just sort of said on it, cavers do it in the mud, in dark holes, in Wellington boots. And as a curious 16-year-old, I kind of went up to him and said, you know, what's all that about? And he said, oh, I'm a potholer. Uh, I said, oh, how cool is that? And just I just sort of said to him, take me. And that was it. And he said, well, we, we've got a club. Um, meet Thursday nights, come along. Um, so I went along to the caving club and that was me. That was 1983, I oh, think, yeah. 1984. Um, and I was then um, a really keen caver, dry caver, throughout the entire 1980s. And then I think it was 1988, I was driving through Kingsdale, Master Cave, uh, Kingsdale in Yorkshire. And we, we just, my friend Steve just threw on the brakes of the car and I said, what? And he said, look, there's a diver. And I'm like, oh, what? And uh, there was a diver coming out of Kingsdale Master Cave. It was, uh, it, it happened to be a guy called John Cordenley, who was, uh, you know, a renowned British cave diver. Um, someone that was really, really well respected by myself and most people in England through cave exploration. And um, we asked him all about caving and, you know, the poor guy never had five minutes to take his mask off, let alone <laughs> answer the questions that we bombed him. And um, he just said, well, listen, bring all your diving equipment up next week and we'll take you diving. Really? Well, um, we didn't own any uh, diving equipment. And if I'm honest with you, if you ask me where that diving equipment came from, in that week, I, I do not have that answer. It was probably stolen, begged, borrowed. So you wasn't di actually diving at the stage? No, I wasn't a diver at all. I'm... But I knew I wanted to be a diver yeah. ever since I was little. I don't know why. You know, it's like people say, oh, I watched the Jacques Cousteau, pub, um, you know, the Undersea mm -hmm. Cousteau programs. And that was what was inspired me. Do you know what? If I'm honest, I can't remember watching those as a kid. I think I never watched TV as a kid. I was always out doing something. And um, I must have seen a frogman on the telly or something on the telly box somewhere. I don't know where. Um, but I always wanted to be a diver. And when my mum sort of said, you know, cut the cake, make a wish, I always wished to be a diver. I don't know why. And it didn't come until I was 21 years of age. Um, and it was that cave diving scenario that, that really brought it in and um you know and and those guys were um you know I, I think you know you've had Phil Short on the on the program before talking yeah, about yeah. cave diving and you know he was explaining that you do, you you kind of explore wet sections of the cave to to be able to get to other parts of the dry cave and and that's what I did as well so I was like a super keen dry caver and then um I started cave diving and then I thought to myself do you know what? I better learn to do this properly because I'd actually lied. They actually said to me, you know, you are a diver, aren't you? I said, oh yeah, definitely. And they sort of said, do you, you do know about Boyle's law and all that? I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah of course. And um, it was kind of cool because I went up there the following week and 
with all this equipment and it was clearly not suitable for cave diving clearly uh we just i don't know we we had no idea of diving equipment and we kind of just took it up there and the cave divers up there just looked at it and threw away into the bushes that were anything that was useless and there was hardly anything left and my heart nearly sank as much say i'm not going to do this diving that i've always wanted to do um and there was a guy called jeff yeadon a very famous old cave diver he lent me his uh, old wetsuit and there was a guy called Barry Sadell. I had his car. He had, he had a car seat belt that, that he designed into a harness for cave diving, you know, and they threw me in this cave called joint hole in Yorkshire. I think it was Chapel Adele. And um, it was great. Um, and I went with this guy called Brian Haig. It was my first ever dive. And I went along after that to a local club to learn how to dive and they were at the bar afterwards it was great we went to a bar afterwards and had a beer <laughs> you know and um they started talking about the shipwrecks that they were going to dive on the weekends diving i'm like what well this was like um a, a dream to a a young man like myself a, a shipwreck you know how enchanting did that sound yeah. i'll have a bucket full of that and before i knew it my my heart was in wreck diving instantly um when I when I went along for my first uh, uh, dive with, and that was the uh, Thrapston and District Subaqua Club, a branch of the uh, British Subaqua Club, very close to me. Um, there was a guy called Alan Bones that uh, taught me to dive bones, um, and um, uh, and a guy called Barry Parker, and both of those guys uh, still dive. Um, and Alan Bones went on to dive technical dives and some of the deep wrecks with us in later years as well. That's good, then. Yeah. But yeah, that's what kind of got me into diving um, in a roundabout way. It was the caving. I still enjoy a, a cave. Um, I haven't yeah. really, I think the last cave dive I did was Cocklebiddy um, in South Australia, uh, Western Australia. Um, um, that was kind of a long cave. Uh, myself and Rick Stanton flew down to um, Australia and joined up with um, some uh, Australian divers to push yes. the end of that cave. Um, that was the last proper cave dive I did. Yeah. Decent cave dive, but it's all wrecks, all wrecks, wrecks, wrecks. I'm a wreck diver. Don't ask me about anything else. I don't know <laughs> the answers. And even if I do, even if you ask me about a shipwreck, it's like, it's like this day and age, sometimes you think to yourself, you worry about going on podcasts and things like that, because, you know, if you kind of get the date wrong on a particular shipwreck or a year wrong or something like this, there's always somebody that will say, oh, he got that wrong. You know, it actually mm -hmm. sank in, uh, you know, 1921 on January the 1st or something. And, I, you know, I do apologize to anyone if I get anything wrong, but I'm kind of getting older now, you know. <laughs> Uh, so from obviously your cave diving and being a wreck diver, obviously it all went into the technical fields, but you know, you previously said it was like a voodoo trade. So how did you kind of overcome that or what kind of response did you get from people within that kind of scuba world? Okay. Um, so this was the very late 1980s and um, there was no such thing in mainstream diving as nitrox uh, there was no dive computers. There was no, no, uh, there was nothing like, you know, it now you couldn't go and buy a lovely big uh, torch, HID torch or anything like that. Uh, you couldn't even buy a line reel. I, I remember the line reels we had, you know, you, 
in the old uh, British Subaqua Club magazines, you used to get a template to make your own um, wooden, to cut it out of wood and make your own wooden reel. No so you could have an SMB type thing, you know. <laughs> and the guys, that, the guys that I were diving with practically invented the SMBs, the old Kingston uh, Subaqua Club, um, through just because they were forced into diving a wreck called the Warrior off of, um, off of Weymouth. Um, and they were forced into uh, diving decompression because it was do- too deep. And they mm. knew with the tides that they would be swept off the line. So they had to design some device so that the boat on the surface could follow them. And that was when the first SMBs were literally uh, invented. They even used old Coke bottles, you know, um, and oh, loads wow. of things. So, so it's interesting. There was nothing like that back in those days. And, and of course, um, uh, being in the cave diving circles, I knew, I knew of John Corden Lee and his dive partner, Russell Carter. And both of those guys had been to France supporting Olivier Isla on some of his long cave, deep cave dives. And he was using um, one of the very first rebreathers that I, I knew of. Mm-hmm. They were also using something called mixed gas. And again, just like discovering shipwrecks, how enchanting was that? Mixed gas, the very sound of it voodoo to me you know and i wanted a bucket full of that and the guy said to me well go go away i remember talking to them in the pub you know, the new inn at clapham the yorkshire cave divers uh, drinking hole and they said to me go away and learn all about uh, mixed gas and then we'll uh, we'll take you mixed gas diving so i'm like well back in 1989 there was no literature really and the only literature I got was um, a book called Wakulla Springs by Bill Stone. Bill Stone, the American uh, explorer, uh, of which Phil spoke about in his podcast when he went to J2, the cave. Um, and Bill had been to Wakulla Springs and they designed and built some amazing rebreathers, the Cisluna Mark I, uh, to, uh, and Jill may have spoke about that as well in a previous podcast, Jill Heinrich. Yeah. Um, but um, basically, uh, you know, it was all it was all new. And there, that was the only book that I could get hold of. And that kind of had diagrams in of 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 the rebreathers and mixed gas and theory and stuff like that. That was it. There was nothing else. By this time, I knew also a guy called Rob Palmer. Um, mm-hmm. I dived with Rob a few times and Rob had brought mixed gas training back from the states to the uk and at the same time i think rob parker was doing a dive in uh wookie hole so from the what color stones project in 88 or 87 don't quote me um they had some mixed gas left so they shipped it across to england to do these dives in wookie hole the cave in in somerset yeah, uh, because that went to about 60 meters. So they needed to overcome that narcotic pro- problem yeah. of going deep. Um, and so um, I knew of Rob Palmer and Rob taught and Rob had brought the training to the UK as such. Um, in fact, it was him. There was two guys. There was him and Kev Gurr, uh, Kevin Gurr. So Back in those days, there was only three people that you could get trained in mixed gas that I could remember. That's amazing. Uh, so there was Rob Palmer, um, um, 
uh, a guy called Sheck Exley, very famous cave diver in America. And this new guy called um, Kevin Gurr. Uh, well, I thought to myself, well, you know, what does a new guy know about this sort of thing? Uh, I'm not going to go with him. Little did I know, become a great friend. And he was the guy that invented and just a fabulous marine engineer that would, you know, design everybody's dive computers, you know, um, that they would use the VR3s and things like that. Um, I couldn't afford to go to the States, really, not as a young 21-year-old. Um, so Rob Palmer it was, and I just knew him anyway. So he kind of taught me one-to-one how to use mixed gas. Um, and, of course, at that time, there it was it was just deemed voodoo. Um, you know, the mainstream organisations, Paddy and Bezac, you know, were not touching it because there was only – a handful of people in the, we felt like a movement back then, if I'm honest, mm-hmm. I bet. you know, there was, you know, there was, you kind of knew everybody in the UK that was using it basically through word of mouth yeah. and, and letter and telephone call, literally. So there was no internet really. Um, all the information that we got was through a magazine called Aquacore right. uh, that was written by, that was edited by a guy called Michael Menduno. Um, lives over on the Californian coast. Great guy to have on the podcast. He would be. There you go. Yeah, he, you up there, yes, Michael. Uh, yeah, he's. Uh, he watches us. He does. Um, and you know, Michael practically coined the phrase "technical diving," um, and his magazine was uh, just the bible for us all. It really was special. I have a full collection. Not many people have got a full collection of those. Um, but that was the way that we knew what the Americans were doing. Um, and the Americans were slightly advanced to us here in the UK in terms of technical diving. Mm-hmm. And there's a specific reason for that is because they were forced into uh, diving deep sooner than we were here in, the, in England um, because the shipwrecks and the things that they wanted to dive were, were deeper. We, mm-hmm. I suppose I could explain it easier by saying – you know, we have something like 32,000 known shipwrecks around the British Isles, four and a half thousand known shipwrecks in the English Channel alone, of which I don't know how many thousands are within a scuba diving depth, you know, a a, a mainstream diving depth. So we didn't have to dive mixed gas. We had enough diving as it was. However, the Americans didn't have that many wrecks and the wrecks they did have, like the Andrea Daria and the Yoohoo and things like that, uh, Carolina, they were deeper offshore. Mm. So they were forced into using the gas and the mixtures long before we were. So they were ahead of that. But, geez, when we when we took the reins of it, uh, we really did run with the, with the mixed gas. And it wasn't long before a friend of mine, uh, a, a girl called Polly Tapson and her husband, were, um, you know, Take, taking this in their in their hand and using it with with vengeance as such. So, uh, 1994, they dived the Lusitania uh, 93 meters. Wow. Um, originally, you know, it was a big expedition back then, and there was a lot of things going on. You know, um, there was a deep wreck dived in um, uh, in uh, the Great Lakes. Um, Gary Gentile had dived the Orfrisland, which was over 100 metres deep. Um, you know, uh, th- and there's some cool things going on. I mean, it, there was some deep diving. Okay, so I can answer a question that I probably know you think you're going to ask is how did you, you know, what manuals, what did you do? How did you, 
how did you understand all this sort of stuff? Yeah. Well, you know, like I said earlier, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not an instructor. I'm just I'm a shipwreck diver. That's what I was interested in. So I didn't go down the road of writing manuals, becoming an instructor, learning all that kind of thing. Um, now, I remember back in those days, um, you know, if you wanted to dive deep, there was no manuals, no books, nothing like that. No dive computers, nothing like that. And there was, um, you know, these techniques are not new. They were previously reserved for military and commercial techniques, mm-hmm. commercial uh, pipeline, ultrasonic inspection work on rigs, shipwreck, um, oil rigs, things like that, pipeline um, work, deep, you know, this had been going on for a long, long time. But that comes at a cost of research. Yeah. There was a guy called Bill Hamilton, American guy, that was able, he was a mathematician um, and a, a theorist on decompression theory. And he was able to write decompression tables uh, based on the algorithms that were were being used in commercial sectors. Mm. Um, and so you, in the early days, I remember he built the, uh, the tables for Gary Gentile, American wreck diver, to dive that deep wreck. Um, and then Sheck Exley was a, a school teacher, the American cave diver. Now, Sheck was diving deep back in the early 80s. Um, and there was a lot of people doing clandestine deep dives. I'll give you an example. Jochen Hassenmeyer, the uh, German cave diver. In 1983, he dived the Fontaine de Valcus in France to a depth of 200 metres in 1983. Mm. The fact that he was banned from the site because there was no diving allowed, he sneaked in there one night with his wife and his wife sat all night long waiting for him to surface. True story. Oh, on his my. own homemade rebreather. Now, if you Google Jochen Hassemeyer oh, and you look at that rebreather, oh, yeah, they were all using homemade rebreathers. It's fantastic. I knew. Um, so we, Sheck Exley made um, a, so, a, a piece of software program where you could compute on the algorithms your own decompression tables. So um, we were using 486 DOS computers with three and a half inch floppy disks to generate um, a table of decompression. So if we knew we were going to a shipwreck that was, say, 75 meters, that was deep still in those days. We would generate a table on this. Then we would literally write it all down on a piece of paper, laminate it and take it underwater with us. That was what we did. I remember one winter spending the entire winter making decompression tables. Um, <laughs> laminating them. And I, yeah, I do remember then, you know, laminating just pieces of tape. So you'd have a little pouch where you would take um, a table out, depending on what depth you were going to. Yeah. And you took it out. A friend of mine, Jamie Powell, I may speak about him numerous times. Um, he was on our team. Our team was called the Starfish Enterprise. And Great it was name. The- it was the first, it was led by Polly Tapson, female diver, very big force in diving in the early, in the early 90s. And um, it was one of the very first mixed gas teams in the world, literally. Um, certainly the first in the UK. And uh, Jamie was on the team. And I remember the first time we dived the Britannic shipwreck in the late 90s on open circuit. 
It was 119 meters deep. And Jamie only had one. Um, it, it was fun. It was kind of funny because he had um, a D timer. I'm, am I supposed to tell you stories that are? Uh, that, yes. Like, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, he had a D timer on, and it, uh, and those D timers only went to 99 meters back in those days. <laughs> so really the wreck awesome. was uh, the wreck was nearly 120 meters. We're like, you know, like Jamie, how how do you know how deep you've been? He said, Well, the vis is good, so. Uh, you know, I looked at my gauge and I thought, I'm about 100 metres. So then he'd take his table out and he'd just use one set of tables. It was uh, based on a 1433, so that's 14% oxygen, 33% helium. And then he'd think if he's done a bit deeper than he should, he'll add a little bit on. And if he's been shallower than he was, he'll take a little bit off. Just a little bit, nothing like how much. So no, nothing finesse as such, you know. So it's funny, got this D timer. But um, so we were just computing our own decompression tables, literally simple as that. And there was no computers. And I remember going to the San Francisco tech show that was organized by Michael Menduno with Rob Palmer. And we were talking to the guy that makes the Aladdin Pro computers at the show um back in the day it was one of the very first sort of dive computers mm-hmm. and we were talking him into building a nitrox computer and he was like well what's that and we were kind of explaining to him we you know this is going to be big in the future and people need to be able to compute nitrox dives on their yeah. computer um I, there was no such thing at the time i distinctly remember that day me and rob talking him into you know designing this computer but yeah there were good days exciting days um you know, uh, uh, while they were exciting as well, you know, it, it, that comes with a cost as well. You know, yeah. I remember, you know, those days, you know, we were practically inventing stuff and building stuff. I remember building, we didn't have lights to go, you know, we didn't have torches as such. You have a UK 800, which is a, a normal scuba diving light. And I remember we used to get batteries and then just tape them together. And it would last several dives before it was destroyed, you know, and just yeah. rebuild a light that you got from um, the local hardware store and just cut the end off, mold something in, you know, glue something in, just make things, make reels. It was it looked a disaster. Um, you know, had I had I known back then that diving would go like it is, I would have probably set up a manufacturing company selling making diving equipment, you know, <laughs> uh, but it was interesting times. But um and like I say, it comes with a cost, yeah. and you know, uh, particularly when we moved on to rebreathers, mm. um, that you know, a lot of people lost their lives, um, yeah. uh, you know, in those experimental days as such. But it was exciting times. Um, and then Kev Gurr designed the VR3 computer. Uh, it was called the VR3 because um, um, you know they talked. They talked about it a lot. There was three of them that were designing it, and they talked about it so much. We called it you know, virtual reality. The three of them, VR three. But um, and that was a dive, oh, yeah. that was the first real proper dive computer, you know, that we had. Um, and then and then there was a few more people got on the bandwagon. We met a few people. Um, a lot. Um, I was diving with Phil Short out of um, Littlehampton. Mm-hmm. Uh, not Little, not Littlehampton. Um, Paul in Dorset. So that was on the wrecks around our coastline. Yep. So we started to dive. uh, And basically my 
playground then when when we discovered um that we could m mix gas um safely um and, and we tried to, the first time i remember the first time i ever tried to mix mix gas i took the two massive cylinders that i'd hired from british auction company down to the bottom of the garden what uh, uh put the hoses on to fill my cylinders and uh, i remember putting a full face crash helmet on uh, just in case it exploded you know um so then then there was the voodoo art of mixing the gas and getting that right you know i mean there were so many times we just got it wrong and the the percentage of oxygen was so high um and the stories that i can tell you about that crikey but um it was good so all of a sudden we we had mixed gas and we could use it and this was still voodoo by the ma mainstream organizations mm. yeah. and we discovered that there was hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of shipwrecks out there that nobody else had ever seen. That must be so exciting. Yeah. It was. It was just, you know, the this brought us into the 90s. Um, and, you know, the world was our oyster. And this is no word of a lie. Every single weekend we would dive a different shipwreck, a virgin shipwreck that nobody had seen since the day it went down. That's amazing. And we were searching for specific Sorry? How does that make you feel when you go? Is it a bit like walking on snow for the first time? Is it, oh, like, is it is that, uh, wow, no one's been here before. I mean, it's super exciting. Uh, you know, I won't deny that. Um, yeah. the, the, let me tell you how, I mean, how are shipwrecks found? They're, they're like... There's a, a, there was a survey vessel in England called HMS Bulldog that surveyed the entire seabed around the English coast for a specific reason, for shipping hazards, lane pipelines, oil lines, commercial thing, sector, things like that, and also for military purposes. So, for example, you've got a huge shipwreck. Um, a, a military submarine will put itself next to it and it goes effectively, it goes undetected, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, because it's sat next to a known shipwreck. So the hydrographic department surveyed the entire seabed and we got access to that, that those archives. So along with the boat captains, who are the guys that really find the wrecks, and we had some really cool ones back in the day, a guy called Andy Smith, Tim Benito. Steve Wright, um, all sorts of people. John Thornton in in um, in the north in Scapa Flow. All sorts of people um, diving these, uh, finding these shipwrecks. And we were diving these wrecks every weekend. When you when you're the and we what we do is we send the first pair in to go down to make sure that it is actually a shipwreck and not a pile of rocks or yeah. something like that. The next thing those those two divers will do. They will take a piece of string with them and they'll lash that grapnel that is put in the side of the wreck on the seabed to the wreck. Right. And then they'll send like a float to the surface. As soon as the float arrives at the surface, that's our signal for the rest of the guys to jump in the water and dive down that line to that shipwreck. Wow. Once, because we dive very tidal water, sometimes we may have a window of only... 40 minutes on that shipwreck yeah then the tide turns and the slack period goes and you cannot hang on to that 
dive, uh, that wreck. So you're whipped off that wreck. So we had all come up on surface marker boys, all drift off together. And then the boat on the surface would follow 12 marker boys in the English Channel. <laughs> uh, and then once we'd all pop up, um and and go on the boat then we would go back to the shipwreck and we would pull the anchor up but because the line from the main anchor to the wreck was lashed by a small piece of cord that would snap quite easily and then pick the bladder so we would go down the first pair if it was a virgin shipwreck the first pair how exciting is it for that and I'll be quite honest, we, you know, over the years, I've dived some fabulous shipwrecks um, and we've gone down and there it is. Fantastic visibility, the skeleton of a shipwreck or, or a huge. <laughs> I'll give you one example. The Flying Enterprise sunk in 1952, you know, other than the coronation, the biggest media event of the year. Um, you know, there was this one guy on this shipwreck that uh, uh, and it hit the sorry the ship hit the worst storm in history traveling across the Atlantic ocean. Um, and it was one of the Liberty ships and, um, lots of other ships had gone, uh, you know, in this storm as well. And a lot of rescue ships had gone out, but no one could go out to the flying enterprise because there was no ships available. However, three warships arrived on site to, to secure the ship. Yeah. Um, and this ship was listing to its port side severely and all the passengers were taken off other than the captain who refused to leave his ship. Yeah. And for two weeks, this ship was out in the Atlantic on its side um, with the captain on board. Um, and he was like, kind of like the last captain in history to, you know, one of those classic old captains not to lose, not to want to, you know, get off his ship. He wanted to save his ship. In the end, he, he lost the ship and he walked off the funnel as it was sinking, literally. Incredible story if you Google it. Um, and we discovered that shipwreck um, in the English Channel um, in 85 metres of water and just going down and seeing it. It's, uh, you know, words can't describe how exciting it really is to see, you know, a famous ship like that. Um and I think in the day, me and my dive partner, Chris Hutchinson, at the time, we estimated that we dived in the in the in the heyday of technical diving, an estimated four hundred virgin shipwrecks. Oh, People will be so surprised that there are so many wrecks, yeah. known wrecks, around the UK. Yeah, and I, like I said, known wrecks. That's the. Uh, what about the unknown wrecks? Yeah, you know. Um, so we worked quite closely with the hydrographic department. You know, we were identifying these wrecks and then we would write to them and tell them what that particular site was that they had originally found on the seabed. Um, they pretty much did a really good job of weighing up what was on the seabed. Like I know, Ian, you said in one of your podcasts once before, you're very into Second World War. Yeah. I think. Is that correct? Yeah, right. I mean, there's so many second world war shipwrecks out there you know there's more shipwrecks in the english channel per square mile than anywhere else in the world yeah, and that's made up of i mean if you could drain the english channel that'd be you amazing know, can you imagine what's down there yeah. you know since wood could float you know 
things have sank in the English Channel, whether that's old sailing ships on their way to Australia carrying a cargo of uh, of China, yeah. or you know a modern ship, you know that you've seen on the television with people being rescued off of it. Well, there's still about um, forty to fifty U boats that they still haven't traced to see where they actually. Yeah, I think there's about 43 or 40 something U boats in the English Channel. We've dived quite a few of them. Yeah. Um, now, I will say to your listeners now um, some people find U boats really, really interesting. We, we didn't because unless they're broken open and you can see inside them, there's just the, a tube, really. Yeah. yeah. However, I will say that the books of the U boats make the most fantastic reads. You know, if there's any listeners here uh, are, in, are, in, are into their reading, uh, Raiders of the Deep, First World War uh, book about the uh, the U-boats. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's I, I, my good friend in the States, Richie Kohler, has over 400 U-boat books. They make the most fantastic reading because yeah. it's so exciting what those guys did in those U-boats. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you, U-boats... Um, uh, you know, I remember two fantastic warships we dived in the English Channel, the uh, the Limbourne and the Caribidis. Yeah. Um, you know, between them, they lost 500 men um, in the Second World War. Huge warships that we dived off the Septiles in um, the Channel Isles of yeah. France. Yeah. Um, but there was lots of expeditions. And, of course, when we started diving in the English Channel, there were so, so many wrecks that were our oyster. Um, it, you know, particularly sailing ships. It was so exciting diving a sailing ship because cargo, you're looking at cargoes and cargoes of, um, of artifacts. And of course, you know, and it may well be a controversial subject, the yeah. artifacts. Do you ever get asked by, let's say, the MOD, um, Royal Navy, to look at a warship to say, can you confirm what is your view on what actually sunk? Did it hit a mine? Did it get torpedoed or anything like that? Do you ever get <clears throat> No, we don't really. Um, that history's kind of gone. Mm. Um, the only time I remember that we got involved with the Royal Navy was when we went to look for a submarine called X-5 in the Arctic Circle. Now, X-5 was um, Second World War. It was one of three secret mini, midget submarines that got into the, uh, the Carfjord, which is one of the um, fjords of northern Norway. Oh, the Tirpitz. So, yeah, it went to blow up the Tirpitz. Ah, yes. So the Tirpitz, a massive German battleship, sat in one of the fjords up there and hit Churchill always sort of said that it was his thorn in his side because it affected the northern convoys, which was important to get to Russia. Yeah. And the Tirpitz was up there, um, so it could come out at any time and destroy the, the, uh, the convoys. So they needed to get rid of it. So they designed and built these secret little midget submarines that had four men in them. They would tow the, they towed 10 of them across from northern Scotland to Norway. Imagine. Um, two of them were lost en route, I think, with the men inside them, you know. And these midget submarines, what they would do is they would, because the Germans protected the fields, the fields are like uh, big lakes, inland lakes. 
that go out to the sea. And they would have nets across the entranceways to them, big mesh metal nets to stop the U-boats, I'm sorry, to stop the submarines or anything getting in. And the secret submarine would go inside, uh, go, go up to the net. A diver would get out. There's only four men in them. A diver would get out, cut a hole in the net. The submarine would go through. And on the side of this submarine were saddle charges. Basically, there were two huge bombs that the guys inside would unscrew when they got to their site. So they got to the turpits, unscrewed them underneath the turpits that was moored up there, having penetrated these secret nets and, and every other guard that was in there, drop the bombs and then get out. Well, only three of them got in, X5, X6 and X7. X6 and X7 dropped their saddle charges and they became so buoyant, they came up to the surface. And the Germans were like, you know, what was going on, you know? And they soon realized they were under attack. So these guys were, uh, you know, captured and on the deck. Um, now, the saddle charges were set to go off within two hours. Now, can you imagine standing on the deck of the Tirpitz under gunfire by the Germans, right? Knowing full well that within two hours, that thing's going to blow sky high. You can't comprehend something like that in this day and age, can you? You know, this world we live in, and it's not until you start reading about the war and everything that went on, even the government, how clever it was to strategically do everything, that these guys were on there. Well, X5 surfaced quite some distance off, and the Germans by this time knew they were under attack. So they uh, put gunfire into the submarine, and then it went down, and it's never been seen again. Um, so we don't know if it was successful in dropping its charges, mm. and it's never been seen again. So we set about running an expedition to find X5. And, of course, if... Churchill never gave the Victoria Cross to the captain of the of uh, Henty Career, the captain of the uh, uh, X5, because he never knew whether it was successful or not in its mission. Um, so we thought if we find that it was successful, if there's no saddle charges on it and it dropped them saddle charges under the turpits, mm. then then the family of that captain deserves the the Victoria Cross, yeah. and you get a Victoria Cross if you physically change the outcome of a battle. Now, the Tirpitz, while it didn't sink, it was blown about six feet out of the water and it broke its back. Basically, it put it out of action. Yeah. They towed it down to Toronto to fix it, the Germans did. And by that time, it was within aerial range of our, our flight paths. So we were able to bomb it and destroy it permanently but up until that time though it, it went back down in the water and those poor guys that were on that deck under gunfire you know um thought oh my god we haven't even been successful in our mission because it was still floating you know it's an incredible story it is incredible but let me let me let me finish that story we never ever found that you that uh, submarine nice where so is it <laughs> It must be there somewhere. Because it was the um, Tirpitz was salvaged, wasn't it? And it took about 10 years to salvage it after the war. So 
would it could have been removed then? Would it have been found then? Well, no, like I said, um, the Tirpitz was towed further south yeah. from when it was bombed by the, the X-boats, yeah, the submarines. Mm -hmm. And then it, it sank further south in southern Nor uh, Norway, in Tromso. Um, and that's where they salvaged it. So it's in a different place. The, the X-boats, the X-craft are in the north, in the Arctic Circle. Um, so we went there and we went to find it. And me and my friend Carl thought to ourselves, why don't we ask the Royal Navy if we can borrow some warships to go and look for this warship that belonged to the Navy? Yeah, like you do. And this classic, you don't ask, you don't get. Well, we asked the Navy and they said, yeah, we can give you some warships. And they gave us two hunt class destroyers and they sent them to the Arctic. And um, we had them for our use for two weeks and the crew um, looking for this X boat. But we put in that war in those waters the most up-to-date technology sonar equipment to find those mm. wrecks and um, uh, there was a guy that was working with us called bill smith uh, bill from newcastle um, very good sonar uh, detection guy um, bill was able to locate um, bluebird in coniston lake donald campbell's speed yeah. boat that you know um, and he's he located the minefield for us that we discovered that sank the britannic titanic sister ship um, so he, he came with us to find the X-boat. And I remember once we came back with 400 miles of data and we thought we'd found it And uh, on that data. And we went back up and it was something that looked very much like a submarine, but turned out to be a wooden shipwreck. And we had a, a documentary team following us as well from Channel 5, you know. But sadly, that's, you know, some get away, don't they? And that, that particular shipwreck, we may have died 400 virgin shipwrecks, but there was one that we couldn't find. <laughs> well, it could have blown up as well. If they were shooting at it, maybe, it, you know, something happened to it that had explosives on it. Well, it's the endless quest, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. 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 The, previously, you mentioned artifacts, and a lot of our listeners will be thinking, you're going down shipwrecks. Do you take things from Okay. Gemma, proper controversial conversation now. Wait, what? You stopped it there? <laughs> yes. I just. Uh, I asked the wrong question. <laughs> just right. Well, we'll have to wait to listen to to and download it next week. Yep, next Monday. Sorry. All right. All right. Okay. Well, you know. That's, uh, that's exciting stuff. And I hope you enjoyed that, you know, that first part. Um, and I've got to say, you know, thanks to Lee for joining us and um, being part of this. And uh, it's been absolutely fascinating hearing these early stories about what, you know, what the guys are doing. Yeah, he's just an amazing diver and has all this experience of, yeah, wreck diving, cave diving. and Yeah, yeah. There is a snippet out on youtube we've released uh with the thanks to lee who's provided us with some photos and a bit of video work um and there's a huge short youtube about just under five minutes that's gone we've released about the same time as this episode and that's on youtube uh and that is out 
have a look at that. The footage on that is amazing. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, the clarity of it, you know. And um, got to say, you know, when you're watching now, kind of here's a question for you: Is that the deepest bit of chocolate that's ever been eaten? In the diving, Shh. well, the decompression. I got to have to watch the video to yeah, see. Watch the video. Listen the to the video. podcast. Yeah. But leave your comments. Let's hear it. Can you, if you can think of it, or if you know of anyone who's eaten a piece of chocolate deeper than so many meters, you you let us know because I I got a feeling that's probably the the deepest. And why didn't they get sponsorship? Round trees, Cadbury's, others, all these Mac chocolate companies. Yeah, brilliant. Well, there you anyway. go. Anything might come of it. I know. Anyway, so uh, that's that. Um, you know, you're going to have to come back and download the next episode, which will be out next week. That's out next Monday. And um, I hope you can wait till then. There will be some more social media. There will be a couple more videos, bits and pieces on YouTube coming. Mm-hmm. Um, it's gonna, we're in for a busy week. We've got lots to do and uh, lots to share. Yeah, we've got lots on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, we do like to hear from you. We like to have your comments. And uh, we can't do this without your support. So do leave us a review on iTunes or Entail or Spotify or wherever you get your your podcast downloaded. Um, Leave us a review and let us know what you think, because, you know, it's a free way you can support the podcast. And don't forget to tell your buddies, your dive buddies, to say, that big scuba lot, they do get some interesting guests on. Yeah, so, they do. Here we go, you know. And we also need to give a shout out to our fellow podcasts. Yes. Well, we got a mention on another podcast today, Garage Built Athlete. Yes. So just to say thank you. And if you're interested in CrossFit and just a general conversation about training and about two crossfitters or their two brothers. Two chatting. brothers, yeah. Yep. Just have a listen to Garage Built Athlete. They're on YouTube, yeah. Spotify. And they have a real uh chilled out conversation about things to do with fitness and that. Yeah, they? it's a real lovely listen. You can just have it in the background and it just yeah. makes you smile or it makes yeah. you smile. Yeah, no, it's it's good. And you know, we know Will very well. And, um, you know, it's um, it's brilliant. It's a really good one to download and listen to as well. Yeah, it's a chilled out Sunday release podcast. Yeah. yeah, so there we have it. So look out for that Garage Built Athletes. Yeah, so listen to them on Sunday. Listen to the Big Scuba Monday. So organised. I know. <laughs> brilliant. Okay, well, I think that's about it. So, uh, yeah, so the next episode is out on mon- next Monday. Uh, which will be the second part and final part to our conversation with Lee. And uh, don't forget to look on the YouTube for the video. And there'll be some other bits and pieces coming out during the week regarding this conversation. Yeah. So keep your eye out on our social media. So we're on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, the big scuba, TikTok as well. So, and if you have any comments or recommendations, just direct message us or email us and we love hearing from you we certainly do and uh, don't forget that all important bat phone 
And Ian is just trying to look up the number, and it is plus four four. Plus four four. Plus four. <laughs> <laughs> it is plus four four. Seven eight one zero double o five nine two four. There we go. <laughs> so uh, let's have those voice mails so we can play them. Uh, we had one only a couple of weeks ago was from uh, our good friend Matt in yep. Norwich, and uh, he let us know about his diving. And uh, hey, maybe we get Matt on. That'd be really good. Yeah, be great to have a little conversation with him and yeah, yeah. get the world to listen Budding to him. cave diver mm. in yeah. Norwich. Yeah. We, in Norwich, we need some more cave divers. Yeah, there's not many caves in Norfolk, is there? <laughs> so uh, there we go. Anyway, right, that's it for us. So, yep, drop us a message. We look forward to hearing from you and look out for episode 87. That's Lee Bishop again, and he'll continue with his discussion about artifacts. Yes. Cool. Right, see you then. See ya. Bye. Thanks for listening to the podcast. We are not affiliated with any agency or organisation and all opinions expressed in this episode are our own and those of our guests. If you wish to make any comments about this episode, then please do contact us via email or our social media platforms that are listed in the episode show notes. Alternatively, you can send us a message or voice message via WhatsApp on the Big Scuba Bat Phone and the number is plus four four seven eight one zero 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 five nine two four we will always respond promptly and thank you once again for downloading this episode